2: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, as we get ready to welcome the new year, we're taking stock of the stories and experiences that shaped the past year.
3: So a lot of people were relying on virtual things like an eagle cam for entertainment and for comfort and for a sense of normalcy. Technology allows
2: me
4: to be the boss of my life and I like being the boss.
2: That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Throughout the last year on the show, we have had more than 350 conversations with Coloradans across the Front Range and beyond. Our production team talked with all kinds of people, teachers, artists, park rangers, students, doctors, and more. Some of these conversations sparked joy, empathy, and connection with different communities and people in northern Colorado. Others were more difficult, reflecting the pain so many of us share as the pandemic has morphed and continued. Today, we're trying something new. I'm joined by Colorado Edition producers Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. We're each going to share some clips from our favorite segments of the year, talk a little bit about why they stood out as special to us. We want to give you a little peek behind the curtain of how our show comes together every day. Henry, Tess, thank you so much for being here. Hello. Howdy. Henry, can you start us out?
5: Sure. So to start off, probably the first interview that came to mind when I started thinking back over the year of what we did was an interview that I'm probably not going to forget for the rest of my life. But uh, back in February, we got the chance to interview Dr. Melba Patillo beals and she was part of the historic Little Rock Nine a group of nine black students who were the first to integrate central high school in little rock arkansas uh, three whole years after the u.s supreme court ruled that segregated schools were unconstitutional in brown versus the board of education and so we got the chance to speak with someone like that on a show like ours because she was doing a talk with a group in fort collins just kind of about her life story and her memoir and was just so generous with her time when we got to speak with her. We talked maybe more than an hour. I thought we'd get like 20 minutes. And for someone like myself and probably many listeners, I learned about this in history class in school. And to to be on something like a Zoom call with someone who was there for something so significant in American history was really remarkable. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll listen here to a a part of that interview with Dr. Melba Patillo beals she starts by explaining some of what was going through her mind on the first day they attempted to get into school and how that day would
4: turn out. We were excited. We, we talked about it. We thought that it would be a new area for us. We did not think we'd be welcomed at first. There was certainly indication by mobs that had gathered on the days before that this was not the place we'd be welcomed. If you're 15 and 14 and 16, you think that in time they will see that I am human They will see that I polished my saddle shoes. I got a long ponytail, too, and I'm bright. So I thought, okay, there'll be this initial period. I expected to hear the N-word every now and then. What I did not expect was to see a mob carrying a rope, telling us off the bat that they were going to kill us, that we were not going to be going in their school. Now, that very first day, we didn't get in. A mob chased us. I only got to across the street from the school, directly in front of. Huge mob. At first, my mother and I came up behind this mob. We didn't even know what's going on. We thought, haha, perhaps there's a parade to welcome us, or what's going on, you know? And we got chased out of there with uh, these guys with their ropes, and almost got killed that day, almost got hanged. And I said, oopsie, you know, this isn't quite what I thought it was going to be.
2: And, Henry, I when I heard that interview, too, exactly what you described, you know, I read about the Little Rock Nine, but to hear her describe that experience in her own words, that was incredible. I think it gave me this new appreciation for how incredibly brave they all were. Glad you got to talk
1: to her. Tess, how about you? Yeah, so the first segment that I want to talk about is someone that we spoke with um, just last month in November. Um, We talked with a 16-year-old Peonia resident, Apollo Rodriguez, and he... Um, had just come out as trans a few months before we spoke. And we actually talked to him because he had just published a photo essay about coming out as trans in Paonia. And the essay was published in High Country News. I was scrolling through Twitter one day and I came across it and was just really impressed by the photos. And I thought he'd be an interest- interesting person to talk with. So here's a clip from that.
3: I think that photography has been a really great outlet for me with my transition to really explore um like what I'm really thinking and what, how I really want to express myself, it's, it's very therapeutic for me to just be able to come home after a long day of feeling really dysphoric or being misgendered a bunch of times or questioning myself and just start taking pictures of myself or of other things. And as I'm taking pictures, it's just a way for me to kind of work things through and get things out. And by the end of my little photography session, I always feel a bit more level-headed.
2: One of the things I really loved about that conversation, too, with Apollo is, you know, how he used this, his love of photography and his camera skills to document his transition, taking this, uh, you know, really what can be a very intensely personal process, giving it this visibility. Um, I believe that when people do kind of pass judgment on things, it's because they don't understand or they can't relate. I, I just feel like this photo essay could bridge that gap. So I loved it. Well, I'll share one of my favorite conversations from this past year. Um, and it was about the drama that unfolded in a bald eagle nest at Stanley Lake. This nest just so happened to have a camera that captured a live 24 hour view of everything that was going on. Now, a year earlier, there had been a hostile takeover of the nest with a female eagle from outside the area named F 420. She had pushed out the original female and just moved right in and took over. And then this spring, there were two eggs in the nest that were due to hatch. Now, what I learned is there is this community of eagle-watching enthusiasts all over the world. Everyone was completely enthralled by this whole saga. I, It, it was like the Real Housewives, but You know, with eagles. So uh, back in April, we spoke with Lexi Sierra Martinez. She's a park ranger with the city of Westminster. And here's what she had to say
3: it was a lot last year. There were uh, lots of news stations calling, lots of concerned people calling the Nature Center asking for updates. People were really upset and really concerned. This was right at the very beginning of COVID. So a lot of people were relying on virtual things like an eagle cam for entertainment and for comfort and for a sense of normalcy and then these eagles that haven't had an issue in 25 years uh start having all this drama it was <laughs> it was really upsetting understandably to staff too we were we were glued to our computers I was working at home temporarily and I had one computer monitor open at all times just watching the eagle cam
2: I think a lot of us were riveted. And I remember turning on the uh, the Eagle cam, too, and just feeling a little bit soothed, a little bit relaxed, you know, during the pandemic, we needed that distraction. Um, the story didn't have the happiest ending, unfortunately. in May, we learned the large cottonwood tree that held the nest collapsed, and the eagle uh, the eaglet that had hatched earlier didn't survive. Um, but, you know, I'm reminded of something Lexi said in that interview, that our collective fascination with this family of eagles had a lot of benefits. It helped get people thinking about wildlife and how to get out and enjoy nature. So I think it was really a lot more than just something to take our minds off the pandemic. Well, let's turn back to you, Henry. What else do you have for us?
5: Yeah, well, my next pick was actually a first for me. And I think Colorado Edition and KUNC, but we interviewed our first nonverbal guest, Mikel Learned, and her mom, Catherine Carroll. The two of them have a podcast that they host together called Shining Beautiful Series. Um, Mikel is also an author, and she's a blogger and does like public speaking and just a million other things. Um, and some of the themes in this interview were kind of like the intersection of technology and access and. Those were actually themes that we continued to kind of cover throughout the year. Um, I think we were all just kind of very interested in how technology was changing, and it was changing our lives, and especially Coloradans who live with disabilities, like one in five of us. So in this clip, uh, Mikkel is up first, kind of just talking about much of what we talked about in the interview, and then you'll hear Mikkel's mom, Catherine.
4: I went to school in Denver, graduated outstanding senior and have always pushed limits. For years, I traveled with mom around the country presenting on how to get what you want and be successful. I had goals and worked hard. The podcast is another way for me to share my story. We have a lot of listeners, and I'm excited to show people who I am and how technology makes my life and other people's lives better. Technology allows me to be the boss of my life, and I like being the boss.
3: That's right. So the podcast is gives her voice to that a little <laughs> bit better you what you get in the podcast that you don't get in um uh, either the book or the blog is mikhail
4: sassiness <laughs> her, her idea of being a boss so that's kind of fun huh
5: and it was a lot of fun talking with both of them they it's cool to talk with podcasters because it's you know a similar branch to what we do and then they also released after we aired the interview um, uh, an episode of their podcast where they explained kind of how they prepared for the interview on their end Um, and that was just kind of slick for me to hear as a producer because I'm always kind of thinking oh gosh what are the guests thinking are we making them comfortable or all these things go into my mind so uh, to hear them what it was like to prep that was also pretty cool
2: Absolutely. I just loved that interview. I love that she loves being the boss. We are going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of our favorite segments in just a moment. So stay with us. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. As the curtain closes on 2021, we're looking back at some of our favorite
1: segments from this year. Tess, why don't we pick back up with you? Sure. Sure so one of my other favorite segments from this year was from november when we spoke with three indigenous artists in colorado who at the time were just finishing up separate murals in denver's rhino arts district and this was for native american heritage month um and and each artist was working on a really unique and and different kind of mural so we talked with all three of them together about their art and identity, and also like how how art and social change are kind of connected. This clip from Greg Deal, who is an El Paso County-based artist and member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribe, um, really stood out to me. I thought he had a really interesting take on what the identity of activism really means.
6: I think that the title of activist for me it just it feels too formal. Um, I'm not part of like the 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 sort of formal thing that's there, and and I also feel like that what one person calls an activist, another might call an adult with an opinion. And so it really just comes down to like, who's holding the microphone or who has the tools to make a statement. And and furthermore, you know, a lot of what all of us are doing are creating dialogues around things that we experience every day. And so even just talking about something that affects my family, that's real, like I may not be in a position where I'm advocating for anything, but I'm simply articulating something. But the commodification of this idea that everything is activism takes away from the fact that that we are dealing with some significant things with like personally in our communities, whether it's urban or it's uh, on reservation or all of the above. And so I look at my role in this as, as sort of being disturbing spaces and trying to disturb the sort of status quo, the understanding of indigenous existence, the understanding of federal relationships with our communities, the way that we should look, the way that we should talk, the way that we should present ourselves.
2: Well, when I sat down to kind of think about what was important and what was meaningful over this past year, one of the things that felt like a significant milestone to me was that this year marked 20 years since the September 11th terror attacks. Something that I had always been curious about since I moved here was this memorial stair climb that takes place at Red Rocks Amphitheater. You know, who thought of that? How and when did that get started? As I began looking into it, I learned that Colorado had actually one of the very first stair climbs in the country. Now, almost every state, has its own climb, but it was right here in Colorado just a couple of years after 9-11 that a small group of firefighters had gotten together simply to climb stairs in a tall building in Denver to remember the firefighters who lost their lives at the World Trade Center. One of those firefighters who was in that original group is Oren Bersagle breeze He's a division chief with the Castle Rock Fire and Rescue Department. He's done the climb every single year. I talked with him about how it got started and how it grew to include public events like the one at Red Rocks. But what was interesting to me is they still have a separate stair climb that is for firefighters only. Here's what he had to say about that.
7: I think what's important about it is it most directly emulates some of what happened on 9-11. I'm not going to pretend to suggest that we can emulate what their experience was like that day, but by climbing in a building and by climbing with other firefighters, what we actually end up doing is making it almost a, a memorial meets training event, meets uh, physical fitness, meets um, an incident command structure. And so it's something that, you know, we just can't do when with the public. But I'll tell you, the um, you know, there's personally uh, – there's not a lot of other people I'd rather spend the day with than other firefighters. It was a an experience that if you were a firefighter in 2001, obviously you won't forget what that felt like that day. But just who you want to be surrounded with that day are people that, that you don't have to explain things to sometimes. And that, that's what's special for us. We can just look at each other and we know why we're there and what we're
5: doing it for and, and
7: who we want to be around.
2: Well, Henry, what's next from you?
5: Yeah, well... Since it has been getting pretty cold here on the Front Range lately, I've been reminiscing about the warmer days uh, outdoors, and I was reminded of um, a trip I made to 11 Mile State Park, and uh, on my way there I passed a sign that caught my interest and led to a story that we ended up doing on a place called Wilderness on Wheels, which is a camp that was formed in like the mid-1980s that's been designed from the start with accessibility in mind. So. You can picture the trails and the cabins and camping platforms, everything really is truly accessible. And it's significant because it predates some pretty landmark legislation here in the U.S. that kind of changed the landscape of accessibility, and that's the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so this camp, even well before basically the whole country got on the same page with accessibility, was thinking about people who maybe aren't able to access trails normally and giving them the chance to do that. Um, So I've got a pair of clips here from two of the women who are involved at the camp up there. They're just sort of sharing what makes WOW so special in their eyes. Um, First is Allison Kessler. She's on the board of directors for Wilderness on Wheels. And then after her, we'll hear Beth Bellamy. Beth and her husband, Justin, are the caretakers of the camp.
3: My paralysis was temporary, but I was in a wheelchair for seven months, and I was in the hospital that whole time looking at the mountains wondering if I'm ever going to get back there. So when I got out and I learned to walk again, and um, today I just walk with assistive AFOs, Um, I knew I have job satisfaction, I work in tech, and that's really interesting in other ways, but I also wanted to get involved in this community. so.
5: When you finally were able to go for the first time, what did that feel like for you to be able to get back at it?
3: Yeah, emotional relief, I felt like myself again. Um, Just really, really grateful that a place like this exists and I wanna do everything I can to make sure it continues to.
1: There aren't many places that people can go and um, be outside in nature at their own pace, at their own speed, and um, just spend quiet time out here without any kind of adrenaline rush or without um, worrying about, do I need someone to help carry me um, over this rock? Will my wheelchair go through here? So um, this is just, it's a gem.
2: Tess, what's next from you?
1: Yeah, so my last segment I wanted to talk about um, was from October. Um, I, at the time, had been like reading and hearing a lot about how teachers of young students, like kindergarten through second graders, were kind of dealing with some unique struggles or issues in the classroom because some of their students had never had in-person learning before because of the pandemic. Um, like They had just been learning from home in the last year and a half or so so that made me really interested and i was kind of like wondering how they were dealing with that and what kinds of changes they would noticed in their students this year so we spoke with two teachers ivory jarman an english language education teacher for kindergartners at samuels elementary in denver and we also spoke with jennifer hughes a second grade teacher at butler elementary in fort lepton and one of my favorite parts of our conversation was hearing about kind of the joy and excitement that some students were feeling being back in the classroom like i had been thinking about this this is really negative and sad, but um, hearing how excited students were made me happy. So this is Ivory Jarman talking about her kindergartners in Denver.
2: One example would be giving each other hugs. I've seen that a lot more. You know, when we went into remote learning, a lot of students would say, I just miss seeing my friends because it's different to see your friends on the computer than it is to see them in person. And When we did come back last year, I know students had to sit at their desk. They weren't allowed to do, you know, in kindergarten carpet, our time on the carpet when we sit in circle, that's a huge deal. I mean, we have a group of students that missed that for a whole year because that was just not something we could do.
1: I guess listening back to that clip um, with where we are in the pandemic now, um, new variants Coming up, and and the virus seeming to spread all the time, um, it makes me wonder how life is changing for those kindergartners again, if it is. Yeah, and for the
2: teachers as well to deal with all of that uncertainty, in addition to you know helping their new students. Um, well, as I think back about my favorite segments from the year, I just want to wrap up with my conversation with author and food scholar Adrian Miller. Uh, His book came out this year. It's called Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue. And in it, he is calling out this glaring lack of representation of African-Americans in barbecue. If you watch TV at all, you know barbecue is riding this huge wave of popularity which means it's more profitable too. Um, But with the rise of all of these barbecue competitions, food tourism and other food shows, the faces and the voices and the contributions of black barbecuers are absent from the current narrative. So Adrian Miller traces the origins of barbecue in the U.S. back to Native Americans who would build a kind of a low-to-the-ground framework to cook and smoke meat, mainly as a way to preserve it. He then writes about enslaved Africans and enslaved African Americans without whom we just wouldn't have barbecue as we know it today. One of the aspects of his book that I really fell in love with was the chapters that he devotes to notable African-Americans in barbecue history. When we sat down uh, at Nordy's Barbecue and Grill in Loveland, I really wanted to ask him about a true Colorado barbecue legend, Columbus B. Hill.
0: Um, But his most famous slash infamous barbecue was for the 1898 stock show, January 1898. And this
2: would have been in Denver. It
0: was in Denver. So surprise, surprise, the future of the stock show was in doubt at that time. <laughs> some things never change. Well. Right. And so the Denver Stock Growers Association decided to have this VIP barbecue. Okay. So they were gonna you know just like put on a nice spread for all of these people and, and hopefully that would secure the stock show's future. So um, word got out in Lodo which was mm-hmm. the CD part of town then.
5: Okay.
0: And so 30,000 people showed up for this 5,000 person barbecue.
5: Oof.
0: So they were there was a lot of clamoring. There's some pictures of this actually. Um, black and white photos from this. Some people took pictures of that, but a lot of it was illustrated. Mm -hmm. And so um, somebody got the wild and crazy idea that they could chill out people by giving out free beer from the Zhang Brewery that was nearby. And that didn't go over so well. (laughs) And the governor of Colorado and the mayor of Denver at that time got on a bandstand trying to chill people out because they were really agitated. And they got pelted with food and other things, and so they had to get off the bandstand. And then there was was a full-on food riot. Wow. I mean, women and children weeping, fights breaking out. Is, and it's illustrated in the newspapers of the time. So um, for, I think unfairly, Columbus B. Hill gets blamed for this. And so his reputation takes a hit. But he's still doing barbecues in the black community on a regular basis in the years following. But yeah, legendary figure. Um, and in newspapers of the time, he was celebrated as one of the, the best barbecue men in the West.
2: I just love the picture that paints. Um, <laughs> and... You know, this really was just a reminder that we need to understand and acknowledge that the some of the authentic voices and the lived experiences of a lot of people have been written out or excluded from the history that we know today. Uh, it's important that we try to take what action we can to restore these voices and stories to our collective knowledge, whether that is reading a book um, or, you know, even just eating some barbecue. I do want to mention. I did not only want to do this interview for the chance to eat some plates of barbecue. So just just wanted to point that out. One other thing I thought was really funny was that you, Tess, and our other producer Ray Solomon, you're both vegetarians, but we dragged you along to this restaurant. Um, hopefully the sides were good.
1: Yeah, we found good stuff to eat. I think we got like a really good grilled cheese sandwich, and I remember. Um, you and Adrian had these like little corn bites or like cornbread bites or something like that on the uh, the platter that you guys got. And I was stealing those and they're really good. <laughs> corn fritters for the win. Well, that concludes our end of the year producers roundtable.
2: Tess, Henry, thanks so much for, you know, making this show possible. I really appreciate uh, talking through some of your favorite uh, segments that we had this year.
1: Um, and thank you for making them possible.
5: Yeah, of course. I love working with you guys and making this show. So another year.
1: Yeah, this is really fun. I've been in Colorado for almost a year now. I moved in January. So it's been really fun to reflect on everything we've done over the past year. I also want to thank everyone who makes this show possible, including the outstanding
2: reporters in the KUNC newsroom, our digital editors, Jackie High and Ashley Jeffcoat. And a big thank you as well to our executive producer, Brian Larson. Most of all, we want to thank you, our listeners. We invite you to engage with us in the coming year. We're always curious about what you think of Colorado Edition, which interviews are your favorite, what issues are most important to you, and what can we be doing to deepen your understanding of life in Northern Colorado? You can always let us know by emailing coloradoedition at KUNC.org or leave us a voicemail, 970-703-4081. Along with Tess Novotny and Henry Zimmerman, I'm Erin O'Toole. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next year.